1: This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. Catherine Power worked for years to land a dream job at Condé Nast. But when that offer came, she turned it down.
0: I I thought about it for literally two seconds and I said, you know what, I'm I'm on a different path now and I'm going to keep going. But that was a moment where I could have really turned another direction.
1: That other direction was joining with a friend to start what became Click Brands. It includes a mix of companies like fashion blog Who, What, Where and a clothing line at Target. Since 2006, Click has grown to 220 employees and raised $28 million. But before she managed a fashion and media empire, Catherine worked as a dancer in the first Austin Powers movie. And that's where she made her first big business decision, legally emancipating herself from her parents at age 17.
0: I was a very serious dancer when I was young. You know, from the age of four through through my teenage years. And um, I did a a lot of film TV commercials as a dancer. And one of the projects that I did was uh, Austin Powers. Uh, Mike Myers and the director Jay Roach came to our dance studio and they offered me uh, a job dancing in the, in the opening sequence with Mike. And they said, you know, the only problem is, you know, you have to work as an adult because these are adult, you know, hours. Um, so you we'd only be able to hire you if you were legally an adult. So my mom took me I was just about to turn 17 at the time. And she took me through the whole court process to get emancipated. So he was very much supported by my parents, but it was really just so I could could work.
1: At what point did you decide that you didn't want to stick to dancing full time?
0: So I think as a dancer, you know, you understand that there's an expiration date um, on what you do. So for me, dancing was my passion, but also my vehicle to kind of enter into um, to Los Angeles, to the sort of, you know, movie and film industry. Um, growing up, I really, you know, as I mentioned, wanted to be a, a director, a producer. I, specifically, I loved the idea of putting a bunch of elements and people together around a story to make a product, which if you look at what I do now, it's not that Uh, unlike that idea. But now that I've been in the internet for so long, and we move at the speed of light, I actually can't imagine now going back and and making a movie, which takes like five years to even get to a point where you have a script to use.
1: (laughs) So you're saying that as a kid, you wanted to create something like as a director and a producer. What was behind that?
0: Definitely what what drives me is is creating. um, And usually it's creating something that I need myself. That's kind of been, um, you know, something that we've done throughout our business is look for the white space and also what do we need in our lives. Um, And that's kind of what drives me.
1: And so you worked at Touchstone and you also worked at Bolthouse Production.
0: Yeah, I got my first exposure to working really with my grandmother. She had a retail store and she let me go to work with her and, you know, work the cash register and the credit card machine and answer the phone and work with the customers. I mean, she really treated me like an adult at the time. And I was literally probably nine years old. And I remember just being so inspired by that and realizing the first time I helped someone um, with some apparel or a pair of boots and I remember realizing kind of my selling style in that moment. Um, my great-grandfather was an editor um, at Paramount, uh, so when my mom was growing up, he was you know, heavily in, in the business, um, and I grew up kind of hearing stories about him and being exposed to all of these great photographs on, on the set of these really classic movies. And so that was always intriguing to me, and then you know, just the idea of getting people in a room and entertaining them and what does it take to, to get to that place to make that product was always fascinating to me.
1: So did you consciously want to just jump right into the business instead of going to college and graduating?
0: Yeah. My plan was really to go to community college, so Santa Monica Community College, and then I wanted to transfer to USC Film School. But, you know, at Santa Monica College, they they warn you to get there at least an hour early before your class because it's really difficult to park. (laughs) And I thought... I'm never gonna waste an hour of my time. So I'll show up a little late and get somebody who's, you know, pulling out, I'll take their spot. And so I did and I drove around, drove around, a bunch of other people had that idea. And so cut to forty-five minutes later I'm still driving around and I thought, you know what? This is not for me. <laughs> and I pulled out of the parking lot and I called the, the office at Touchstone where I was interning and I said, you know, I, I'm available to work Monday through Friday if you'll have me. And so from then on, I went in, you know, went in at nine every day and worked till six or whenever the office closed, literally every day. And I think I would have paid them to let me work there.
1: Yeah, so it was fateful jammed parking lot. Yes, yeah. it, was, it was
0: a combination and, you know, it worked for me. It definitely doesn't work for most people probably, but I have, since a very young age, I just want to work. I just want to um, create products, make money,
1: Mm-hmm. And when you look back at your time in show business, what are some things that that experience taught you?
0: Being uh, in in the sort of industry in Hollywood, I think teaches you incredible resilience. You know, I there's literally no such thing as rejection to me. It's like a normal part of life to have a change in course. So, you know, we were constantly, you know, going on castings and auditions and putting ourselves out there and, you know, that was something that I just have a lot of comfort in having gone through that experience so much. Now, let me be clear. I don't like the word no. <laughs> but Yes. I, I don't think of no as a dead end. I think of it as a change in course. And I think that has a lot to do with just learning to roll rejection off your back. It's it's always for a specific reason. You're going to end up in the right place one way or the other.
1: Is the only way to do that through the experience of it?
0: I mean, I think you're. some people are born with that kind of natural ability. I'm sure it has a lot to do with the the mood is in your home or how your parents um, treat your successes and failures. So, you know, whether it's on a a level of you're performing three times a week and and, and auditioning three times a week, or whether it's just maybe how your family helps to handle your experiences at home, I, I think it can certainly be something you're conditioned for.
1: And so then how did you end up at the women's magazine Elle?
0: So I was, at the time, working for a special events producer in L.A. Uh, named Brent Bolthouse. And he was kind of the hot nightlife impresario. You know, every hot nightclub was his. Every big, you know, huge party that everybody wanted to go to, he was responsible for. And my job there was to... Uh, create the crowd at these events. So I would invite all the celebrities. I would call all the modeling agencies and get, you know, whatever new girls were coming into the city. And so as I was there, you know, I started to develop just as a hobby. I was super into fashion. I always have been. And so I was reading a lot of, you know, fashion magazines and just finding myself obsessed with them, specifically teen magazines, because they had sort of a more approachable voice, a more real take on fashion. And I one day just thought to myself, like, I'm so obsessed with these things. How can I make this, you know, a job? And so I looked at the masthead of you know every teen publication because I was very young. I was in my very early twenties at this time, uh, and I emailed everybody on the masthead of Teen Vogue, Teen People, Seventeen, L Girl, and um, three people wrote me back. One of which is the former West Coast editor of Elle Girl, and she said you know she was really nice in her response, and she asked me if I'd like to go to lunch. And I said, "Yeah, that you know, I'd love to." And I thought to myself, "Great, I'm going to get to pick this you know person's brain." And I knew nothing about the business. And I sat down with her, and she started to explain you know her her job to me. And she said, "You know, I'm actually leaving the magazine to go work for a startup called Daily Candy, and so we're looking for a new West Coast editor for Elle Girl." And she must have. Uh, done her research on me and sort of understood that I was very immersed in uh, celebrity pop culture and well-connected on the West Coast. And so she said, you know, would you like to meet about the job? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I would love to. The only thing is I'm not a writer. And she said, well, that's okay, because the primary job of the West Coast editor is to book the celebrity covers, and also, to feed us any kind of new information that's coming in through the West Coast, which I definitely had my um, hand on the pulse, yeah. And so from there, I met the editor in chief of El Girl, and they said, you know, Elle's looking for someone too. So I flew to New York. I met with Nina Garcia, who was the fashion director uh, at Elle at the time. And they ended up hiring me to, do, uh, to be the West Coast editor for both magazines.
1: So even though you were immersed in the culture, had you run a team before?
0: No. And in that position, I didn't uh, have any employees under me. So it was really, it was frankly a little sad. I was the only person on the West <laughs> Coast. There were a couple of salespeople, but they were always out on sales calls. And, you know, it was it was a very lonely time because I was literally the only one there. Um, And that's, I think, why my partner now, Hillary and I hit it off is, you know, she was at Ellen New York.
1: So that's Hillary Kerr. Correct. Your co-founder.
0: My co-founder now. And she was at Ellen New York for about four years and her l- sort of last job for Elle was to cover the Project Runway casting. So when they were involved in that, and I was one of the judges on that episode.
1: So how long after you had met, how long did it take for the two of you to decide to create something?
0: It was about a year after we met that we decided to uh, launch Wear. And I remember thinking, you know... She's not been my friend since I was born, so if something goes south, it's not that big of a deal because we've only (laughs) known each other for a year. Yeah,
1: that's very uh, Um, pragmatic.
0: Uh, And so but as we started to see a shift in our own behavior, uh, spending all of our time on the computer, not getting the kind of content we wanted that we were getting in a print magazine on the Internet, I said to Hillary, you know, what is sort of the new version of media for women like us that exists online? Um, But I'm not again, I'm not a writer. You're a great writer. Do you want to write it? And um, so she said yes. Um, and she coined this this sort of fashion-forward best friend voice that we basically grew who, what, where off of.
1: Were you running a newsletter while you were still at L, or did you no, leave your job? No,
0: we jobs? both uh, stopped. Well, Hillary, she would take a couple of freelance projects here or there, and then ultimately it got to a point where she couldn't do it anymore. And I remember, you know, I really, really wanted to work for Teen Vogue. And that was kind of like my North Star at the time. And, you know, but L, and L Grow were obviously amazing. But I, I remember I got a call. I was thinking about this on the way over it, shortly into launching Who What We Are. I think we were just about to close a seed investment, uh, which was literally months, maybe two months into into putting out the first newsletter. And the head of HR called me from Condé Nast and said, you know, we know you've always had your eye on this job. It was the entertainment editor job that this, this young woman was leaving. And, and they said, you know, do you want to come out to New York and meet with us? I, I thought about it for literally two seconds. And I said, you know what, I'm I'm on a different path now and I'm going to keep going. But that was a moment where I could have really turned another direction. Yeah.
1: So in that moment, you had let go of your previous dream and decided that you had a new one?
0: Yeah. And please understand, this was a time where the internet was not cool. I mean, it was like, people thought we were crazy. So when
1: was this? This was this
0: was 2005. So MySpace was the big social network. In fact, we they were our first distribution partner for our, our video series. But I mean, no iPhone. Like this was we were getting no respect from anybody we had to work very hard to fight for you know publicists and fashion brands to take us seriously and but one thing we had from the very beginning was the support of young hollywood so you know we took a very friendly approach to covering celebrities and they responded really well to that so we had from the very beginning a strong celebrity following and they talked about us in the press and That really helped to catapult and to legitimize us as a business. But it was, I mean, we were looked at as very not cool for for a while.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did you take uh, an email newsletter into a full-fledged business that ended up becoming Click?
0: Well, the only reason we started with an email newsletter is because the only example that existed for us to base a business off of was Daily Candy. So that was really the only digital publishing business geared towards women. I mean, at the time, you know, L.com was a splash page to collect print subscriptions. I mean, there was no, there were no content sites by any of these and So was Daily brands.
1: Candy just a, a like an early blog?
0: It was a daily newsletter that okay. sent out and it had so much power. It was like, you know, they would talk about a restaurant and then that restaurant was just, you know, set for life or they would talk about a product and it would sell out. Um, it was later bought by Comcast and folded uh, after a while, but it was it was the hot you know ticket at that time. So we thought, okay, let's copy that model. Well, I mean, and by model I mean like there was no business model, but just kind of what they were doing in broad strokes. And uh, so we sented this newsletter out to about two hundred friends and family, and it really took off from there organically. And we built our business on one story a day until. 2013, which is crazy if you think about it, because now we all produce so much content, uh, and so you know that's that's what we did. We started expanding the website. We put a shopping section in there because we noticed that people were coming to us for for product recommendations. We built our affiliate business, which is like where you refer sales to retailers and and get a cut of the the profits, and then. Coming from print, we did advertorials. And so when I started this business, it was very natural for me to create kind of content that was not advertisement but looked like editorial content. And now that's called, you know, native advertising or branded content. But we were doing that in 2007, you know, really holding the hands of many of these retail luxury beauty brands through this transition of advertising on the Internet.
1: How did you take on running a business and growing it? So much without having prior experience in this.
0: It was honestly the best business school we probably could have gone through. you know we we bootstrapped the company from the time we launched 2006 until the very end of 2012, which is when we first took in our our, our first uh, real round of funding. Um, I think we probably would have raised money in 2008, but that's when the economy crashed. And so we thought, you know, let's just run a very lean business, use our profits to fuel our growth. Um, So for that reason, we've always been really focused around profitability, which was also not cool for a very long time. Uh, And now it is. Uh, So, you know, we we really just learned along the way. I didn't uh, become CEO until the very beginning of 2014. I was encouraged by one of our board members to take the position when we were sort of looking at outsiders for the role. And I'm certainly glad I did. I think it's been the best thing for both myself personally and for the business.
1: When you made that decision, what went behind saying that, okay, I, I can do this job instead of bringing in someone else?
0: You know, I think it's interesting because being the founder of a startup, you sort of do every role at the company. So I could very easily sit Uh, with our head of finance and understand our spending and our, you know, lines of revenue and what we should be doing and what we shouldn't, because I know exactly how much time something should take. I know exactly how much it should cost. So having that experience at the company, I think, was really, really helpful. And then I just think I have a natural sense in me to, you know, I love fashion, but I love making money off fashion more So it's more of the the science and putting the pieces together, the deals together, going back to that idea of being a producer. That's the kind of thing that excites me. So I think I had a natural sort of passion to to do that.
1: In 2016, you made a deal with Target to launch the Who What Wear fashion line. And so that expanded your reach into retail. How did that come about in the first place?
0: So it's funny, Hillary and I had wanted to launch a clothing line at Target since the very beginning. Why Target? Uh, Target was the first retailer to bring on-trend fashion to the masses, which really excited us. So when we started the company, uh, there was no fast fashion in the U.S. You know, you had to go to Europe, you'd go to Topshop. We didn't really have that until Target launched their Go International program, which was the designer collaborations. And so that was really exciting for us to see that you could – give these women everywhere access to the latest trends or hottest designers and they didn't have to live in a big city and they didn't have to have a really big budget. And so we thought, wouldn't it be amazing, you know, who, what, wears doing the same thing? We're bringing fashion to women everywhere. You know, we have an understanding of the fashion cycle, right, from doing this and sort of watching it for so many years. But when we were, you know, first talking about the idea of creating a clothing line, we said, what if we take the same approach, that we take when we're creating content to the product development process. So, you know, as a company, we're incredibly data driven. So, we take all of the data that we have from our media audience. We're looking at purchasing habits, you know, search terms, you know, what women are searching for at any given point in the year, what trends are getting hotter, what's dying down, what conversations are bubbling up over social media. Um, we refer the sales of about 20,000 products per month uh, th- to about 300 different retailers just through our editorial content. So, we're able to see what these consumers are purchasing, what are they putting in the cart together, what materials, what silhouettes, what price points, all of that. So we said, what if we take all that information and we give that to our design team? And then also along the process of designing, what if we ask our consumers what they think? And so we pitched this idea to Target and they loved it. And you know, to their credit, they let us pull back the curtain on the design process a little bit, which I think hadn't been done before. So, you know, we'll be in a design meeting and we'll go on to Instagram stories and we'll show three or four different prints or patterns, and then before we even leave the meeting, we have a few thousand responses that'll tell us which direction to go in. So um, not only does that give us really accurate data and allow us to make better bets, but it also really allows the consumer to become invested in the whole process so that when that line comes out, they're there to see what they help create.
1: (laughs) So it's really making full use of all of the access that you have to your audience and data.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So across social media, we have, you know, we've got uh, private Facebook groups where we're, you know, talking to people all day long about this stuff. We've got DM groups. We've got just a lot of different ways to connect with the consumer about product development.
1: I so saw that you, you told Entrepreneur Magazine that, quote, teens don't have disposable income, but they do have social currency, unquote. How can you make that beneficial to a business?
0: The idea of influencer has changed quite a bit since, you know, we started our business, but it still comes down to to somebody influencing another to make a purchase. And it used to be, you know, the fashion house is influencing what we'd buy or then it was celebrities and who was on a magazine cover and then it was a blogger and then it was an Instagram star and a YouTuber and Now we're seeing a lot of um, conversion around peer-to-peer recommendations. So really, you know, the the girl who's most influential in her friend group, the one you always go to to ask, you know, what lipstick are you wearing or where did you get that bag. So we really focus on that consumer um, because we believe that's the best way to reach critical mass.
1: Was there ever a point as you were building your business where you were questioning yourself?
0: I think you know, all of it's hard. All of it. And especially as an entrepreneur, it's very hard to stop and appreciate what they've accomplished because you're already on to the next thing. It's kind of what makes you great and crazy. Um, But I think that the hardest part is also the most exciting part, which is you don't know what's coming. You know, and so you don't know that, you know, your greatest challenge next year is going to be all around, you know, scaling your infrastructure or international expansion or, you know, these are all things you haven't been through before. So I think that is both what's hard and exciting.
1: We saw that in the media uh, not too long ago. There was some hysteria when Facebook changed its algorithm and all of a sudden it became harder for websites and publications to like disperse their content. So with Click, so much of uh, your branded material is reliant on social media. What if something like that happens with Instagram or any other method where there's an algorithm change or taste changes?
0: Um, Algorithm changes are nothing new. We've actually been having to uh, adjust to them for the last several years. And I think our team is really great at doing so. When you are a publisher who's so active with with Facebook or Instagram, we actually have a great line of communication to them. So we have an understanding of when they're going to change something or if, if you can read between the lines, you can pick up on the direction they're going. So I think, you know, to our team's credit, we anticipated this, you know, almost two years ago. And so we really decreased our dependency on social media as a referral source. And now we use Facebook and Instagram in you know, different ways, like our private Facebook group. We have a beauty group of over 20,000 members. That's a private invite-only Facebook group where there are a lot of really candid, intimate conversations um, where we can get feedback on our products or stories. And, you know, we vowed to them no advertising in that space. So it's just a really pure platform to communicate. We also have a a message bot that has over 140,000 followers on Facebook where we're able to communicate one-to-one with the reader. We use uh, Instagram DM groups all the time to talk about prints, patterns and everything we're developing for the, the two apparel lines. So we're, we're leveraging them in different ways in, on the platforms and in ways that where they know that they're sharing the information with us and they're actually a willing participant.
1: So there wouldn't be a fear of an over-reliance on social
0: no, I think we have to work really hard to make sure that we don't over-rely on any, any one source. Yeah.
1: How do you personally define success?
0: So I always tell people who are looking for, you know, what they want to do with their life, I say, you know, find something you love to do and then figure out a way to get paid for it. So I think it's success if you are able to wake up every day and go do something that you love to do. And if you're able to balance that with, you know, whatever else is important to you, whether it's your home or your family or your friends, to me, that is success. And I feel so fortunate that I get to wake up every day and go do something that I would do for free, frankly.
1: Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Masarakis and Sarah Wyman, who just joined the team. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and review. It really helps new people find the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success.